What do y'all want to talk about? I know Mary wants to talk about end times, but that's not going to happen today. We will talk about that. We will talk about that. I, I do it in a different way than you're probably expecting, but we'll, we'll do that. Um, I've been going back to school here. I have been in school um, to, uh, to learn to be a chaplain. One of the things that, um, that they did was actually come up with the first really good definition of spirituality that I've heard. And uh, could you define spirituality? Would you be able to do that? If I put the mic right in your face, could you define spirituality? You know, it's a hard thing to do. But it's important for us to do in contrast to religion, because normally we think of the two as being one and kind of fusing. But there is a difference between the two. And so, especially as a chaplain, when you're going into a a patient's room, you don't know what faith they are, and whatever faith you are is kind of irrelevant at the time because you're going to minister to them, so we have to be able to be completely interfaith uh, in that kind of work. But spirituality is what we're all about. We are the spiritual care providers in the hospital setting, or any setting, really. So how about this? Spirituality is how we, as human beings, seek and express meaning, purpose, and identity, and how we connect with each other, with nature, and with the significant or the sacred in our lives from moment to moment. I thought that was pretty good. How we seek and express meaning, I added purpose and identity. They had meaning. And how we connect with each other, with nature, all creation, and with the significant or the sacred, which to us is God, right? How do we connect? So meaning, purpose, identity, connection. This is what we prattle on about here at The Effect all the time because it's the core of of contemplative spirituality is to seek and express meaning, purpose, and identity in the midst of this spirit-to-spirit connection when the mind is completely out of the way. So I like that definition. I like what it's doing. How do we get there? How do we seek and express and experience uh, connection? Richard Rohr has a great line where he says there are two ways that we come at this, whether it's a second half of life experience, if you want to call it that, or this definition of spirituality. And he says it's through great suffering and through great love. That those are the two poles, those are the two forces strong enough in our lives to be able to unmask life, if you want to think of it that way. Great suffering and great love unmasks, it pulls the curtain back. All of those distractions, all the things that we piled up in our life that seem significant, all those things that we've used as, as uh, programs for happiness or survival, all of the hurts and the traumas that we've experienced that have now been embedded in us as unconscious core beliefs or these patterns of thought and behavior, all that gets pulled away at these intense moments in our lives. That's why they're so important. That's why they're so significant. That's why when we do face trauma and difficulties in life, if we turn and run, if we try to defend ourselves again, we're working against what the moment actually can offer us, which is this, this window to see what's really right in front of us, to see what's in operation in our lives at the moment. 
And not only that, love always includes suffering, doesn't it? And the more deeply you love, the more deeply you're going to suffer when the object of the beloved is taken away, which in this life is always going to happen one way or another. And so suffering is built into love. The two are, are entwined in a way that we don't normally see because they seem like direct opposites. So how are we going to access this? How do we use the great love and the great suffering in those intense moments? How do we intentionally and consciously bring this about in our lives so we don't have to wait for circumstances to conspire against us, right? And that's called the hero's journey. I know we've talked about this before, but I want to bring it up again in relation to what we're going to be talking about this morning. The hero's journey was really brought to our awareness by Joseph Campbell back in the 50s, famous anthropologist and author. And, but it's really been around since we've been painting on cables. As long as there's been people you know, who actually buried their dead and had a social connection, the, they've been telling stories to each other. And that's what we do. Remember, when we get together, all we can do is eat food, sing songs, and tell stories. Well, telling stories is a really big deal. And the stories we tell are what define us. They define the way that we look at life. Our self-narrative, our self-stories are the way we make meaning. The way we have synthesized all the hurts and the traumas and the things that we've experienced in life into a way that makes meaning so we can keep on breathing here. So we can keep getting up in the morning and go to work and do the things we have to do. Those stories are vitally important. And one story that we've been telling each other over and over and over again, in fact... There is one uh, writer who says there's basically only seven plots that you can write, you know, and they just revolve over and over again. Joseph Campbell says there's really only one plot. There's really only one story, and he calls it the monomyth. It's the one story that we tell each other over again, and it occurs in everything that we have, that has been preserved for us through the ages, from Odysseus and you know, coming back to Ithaca from the Trojan War to Parsifal and the Holy Grail to Luke Skywalker and Neo in the Matrix and Dorothy Gale in the Wizard of Oz, the stories are all the same. They have the same shape to them. So whenever you encounter a story that's basically a transformation story, think about it. Dorothy Gale's my favorite because all the pieces are there and so, so clear. She's in black and white Kansas and she's hating her life. It's not what she wants it doesn't have any significance or meaning to her. And she wants to go someplace over the rainbow because there's got to be a better world there, a better experience for her. And she yearns for that experience. That's her wounding. The hero's journey always begins with a wounding. Because when we're happy, when we're content, we're also complacent. We're not going to move off of that space because it feels good. It's only when it feels bad that we're actually motivated to move and to change and to do something different. There's this great line from the program that says, we progress at the pace of pain. You can put that one on your fridge. Because it's true. Whether it's you disciplining your kids or whether it's you trying to form a new habit, we progress at the pace of pain. The wounding, the difficulty, whether it's coming inside from a person's own unhappiness, whether it's coming outside from some form of trauma or abuse or oppression, whether it's just circumstances that conspire, there is a wounding. And what it does is it has that unmasking effect. It parts the curtain. The life that they knew, the comfortable life that they were familiar with suddenly is pulled away and a, a choice becomes present. What are you going to do? when you realize that the life that you had is no longer the life that you can continue with, what do you do? 
Are you willing to go forward into a completely new world that you know nothing about, where all the rules are changed and it's really, really scary? Or do you try to move back, double down, and rebuild the walls of your fortress? Now, Dorothy, she's got her little dog, right? And it's really the dog that propels her first because the dog is threatened. And so she runs away with the dog, but she only gets as far as Professor Marvel Right? And he talks her into going back because her Auntie M is so distraught. And so she goes back, but the twister takes her away to Oz anyway. And when she opens that door to full Technicolor Oz, all the rules are changed. Now there's munchkins and witches and all of these things that make no sense in black and white Kansas. And she has to deal with all of this stuff. Now, Glinda is the first one who meets her. On the hero's journey, once the call is answered and the person, the hero or the heroine, is willing to go into this new world, then the guides and the, the helpers show up and they give tools and gifts and boons to them to be able to complete the tasks that are being asked of them. And so Glinda gives her the ruby slippers. She doesn't know how they work. She doesn't know what they're for, but she's got them on. You know, that's not going to be significant until the end, but follow the yellow brick road. Go see the wizard. The wizard can get you home, and all she's focused on is getting home, and she meets her traveling companions along the way, right? The scarecrow, the, the tin man, and finally the lion, and they look to us, especially as children. If you grew up like I did, once a year, they played that thing on TV, and you had to wait because there were no DVDs. There was no anything. You just waited for that thing to show up and pop the popcorn. So we thought that they were her friends. No, that's her own intelligence. That's her own compassion. That's her own fortitude being built up as she goes through this journey that are being shown to us metaphorically as her traveling companions. And the wizard tells her to go back and get the broomstick of the Wicked Witch of the West. So that's the, the journey that she needs to make. And when she brings it back, he turns out to be a fraud. But she realizes that she had the power to go home anytime she wanted. All she had to do is click her heels. And she's back in black and white Kansas looking at the same ring of faces that she was looking at in Oz. And what does she say? Next time I go looking for my heart's desire, I'm not going to go look any further than my own backyard. Because if it's not there, I never really lost it to begin with. The hero's journey is a journey that we need to take to find out we didn't need to take the journey. That's the whole thing. Everything that we need is already within. What does Jesus say? The kingdom is not out there to be found by observation. Look, here it is. There it is. It's within. It's among. It's in the midst of. But we won't know that until, first of all, we accept that the life that we thought we knew doesn't have any clothes on. Another fairy tale that's telling us the same thing. The emperor has no clothes. Are we willing to accept that? Are we willing to move with it and roll with it? and move into this new world, accept the tasks that are being placed before us, and circle completely around, come back to where we started, but know the place for the first time, T.S. Eliot. Boy, I'm just piling up the illusions here, aren't I? That's the hero's journey. It's this beautiful circle. And we don't just take it once. Obviously, what is it? why is it so enduring? Why have we been telling ourselves that from the beginning? Because it is the journey from birth to death of every human being who graces the planet. It is a story of the child moving into the world of the adult. That's the whole point. Adam and Eve, the story is the same. 
It is Adam and Eve moving from the garden, from the world that they knew, into, out of Eden, and into the world that we know now. But they're moving from the complete, involuntary, and unconscious unity of the child into the self-aware adult. And all that brings with it, all the sweat and toil and fear and sense of separation. It is a story of the same journey. It is so important for us to understand this. When I finally encountered this a couple decades ago or more, it was so important to me because it gave me a map for the journey. Because I was experiencing such distress at the, I didn't call it this then, but deconstruction of my faith and the deconstruction of my world and calling everything into question and trying to find my way through. But the hero's journey gave me a way to express that in a way that my distress and my discomfort became meaningful. It had a place, it had a meaning, it had a purpose. Now, okay, I can go through this just as a weightlifter goes through the pain of pumping iron in order to get to the outcome. Now, with the journey mapped out, you can see why it is, and you know that you're right on schedule, and you're feeling exactly what you're supposed to be feeling. In fact, if you weren't feeling that, then you really aren't on the journey, you see. And so the journey becomes so important for us to understand this. Jesus' life, Carl Jung called it an almost perfect map of the soul. Just land on that for a second. Jesus' life is an almost perfect map of the soul. His life is a hero's journey. Same, same story, same shape to it. When Jesus is 12, he kind of owns the shop, right? He's in Jerusalem. He's owning the courtyard of the temple. Everybody's amazed at him. We don't see him again for 18 years. In that 18 years, a lot has happened. A lot has changed. He's impelled by the Spirit out into the wilderness, where he is then beset by what is usually translated as the devil. But Akel Kartza. Achel Kartza in Aramaic really means the accuser. And that can be an actual being, but it can also just be life. We don't know how long Jesus was in that wilderness, but we know it was more than 40 days. That's a symbolic number that means a time of trial and testing into a rebirth. And Jesus was out there dealing with three significant temptations. Right? Turn the stones into loaves of bread, which Henry Nouwen says is the human need for relevance. What's more relevant than being able to make something edible out of something that is not? What's more relevant than that to life? And then to bow down to the accuser and get control over all the kingdoms of the world. The need to be powerful. The need to be in control. The need to be able to control our own outcomes as we see fit. And then third, to throw himself down from the parapet of the temple, which would have put him right into the courtyard and everybody watching, only to be borne up by the angels, the need to be spectacular, to be relevant, to be powerful, to be spectacular. These are basic human drives. Jesus needed to be able to regulate his own emotions, put those things down as compulsive drives in him so that he could see the truth of his father's love. Now, that may sound strange to some of you who think of Jesus knowing exactly who he was from birth, but the scriptures tell us a different story. They say he was human in every way that we are human. He had to go through everything that we go through. And if he didn't, what kind of model would he be for us as humans? And when he tells us we can do what he has done, 
What is it that he has done if he did something supernatural that we can never recreate? Jesus went through exactly the same stages and steps that we have to go through, that everybody goes through. And when he came out of that wilderness, wherever it was and however long it was, and comes back home, makes a complete circle and comes back home again, he has a gift that he can give to his people as every returning hero or heroine does. Dorothy is going to come back to the farm as actually a useful member of the family. Not the goof-off who can't even do the simplest tasks. She will bring a gift back. Jesus brings a gift back to his people. Jesus answered the call of the hero's journey. And he returned with a gift. We don't have to answer the call. In fact, most of us don't, at least not the first time. Most of us end up kind of camped outside the gates of Eden. You know what I mean by that? When Adam and Eve leave, the way back into the garden is blocked by cherubim with the flaming swords. They can't go back. But if you're too afraid to go forward in life and you can't go back to your childhood, where do you go? You end up just camped outside the gates in this real gray kind of existence that lacks the meaning and the purpose and sense of identity that our spirituality is all about. And it keeps us from the experience of the connection with each other and with God. Jesus does answer the call. And he brings this gift back to the people. But here's the catch. (laughs) One hero's gift becomes another person's call. Do you see how that works? If someone comes back from the hero's journey and presents you with what they have learned, what they have become, that is going to challenge your narrative. That's going to challenge the way you see your life, which is going to pull back the curtain and demand a choice of you. How are you going to respond? How did the people respond to Jesus? Well, first of all, let's take a look. We're in Luke 4, starting at verse 14. So Jesus returned to Galilee. This is after his time in the wilderness, all right? Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. He's a changed person at this point. And news about him spread through all the surrounding district. And he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. A lot of things going on here. We'll talk about them in a second. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. So Jesus is back in Nazareth. This is where he he grew up, his hometown. But that doesn't mean that this was the beginning of his ministry. He had been back in the Galilee for some time. They've heard of him. They're anticipating his return back home. There's people here who watched him as a child growing up. In fact, they're amazed. Isn't this Joseph's son, they're going to say later? You know, really? And they're hearing all these signs and miracles and healings and all these things that he did, primarily in Capernaum, which is not very far from, from Nazareth on the north shore of the Lake of the Sea of Galilee. And they are expecting the same thing to happen in their town as well, of course. 
It's interesting because Capernaum was Jesus' hometown. We usually think of him as being completely itinerant. You know, the foxes have holes and the birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. But Jesus had a home. And this was his family home, and it was in Capernaum. And the scriptures talk about him going back to his house in Capernaum. So that was his base of operations. And a lot of activity went on there and then throughout the Galilee. As we read this little passage from Luke, the English translation and listening to it through our own modern Western mindset gives a very different impression than what was really going on. So I want to give you a little backstory here. Okay, well, how should we understand? What did the, the setting and the scene look like when Jesus stands up to read the Isaiah scroll? First of all, the ancient synagogues of the Jews at this time were liturgical. So every Sabbath they had a liturgy, kind of like the Catholic Mass. You know, what's a liturgy? Well, it's a set form or ritual of public worship that a, a group of people, that they, they use over and over again. So it's the same form, the same ritual, week after week, service after service. So just like the Mass is going to be the same, wherever you go in Catholicism, it's going to have the same parts to it. And the same thing happened with the, with the Jewish synagogue. But at the same time, they also had a portion, a time for teaching and for actual discussion. So not only was it a liturgy like a mass, but it was also like a modern Bible study where you had time to actually talk about, expound on, and discuss, ask questions, rebut, debate, talk about things. Jews love to debate, right? If you've got two Jews in a room, you've got three opinions. You heard that one before? All right. Now, there were three main leaders in this synagogue service. There were readers, interpreters, and expounders or teachers. The readers were the ones who read from the, both the Torah and from the book of the prophets, the Torah or the Nevi'im. The interpreters were the ones who literally interpreted because you'd be reading in Hebrew, but the people spoke Aramaic. And so the interpreters were interpreting the reading to the people in real time, kind of like someone who's signing or in the UN with the headsets on. They would actually be interpreting to the Aramaic speakers in the group so they would understand what the reading was saying. And then the expounder of the teacher was the one who actually talked about, explained what was going on in the scripture, and then led the discussion portion of it. So we got these three leaders. This ancient liturgy that they were going through was they would read through the Torah. The Torah is the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, which they considered the law. They would read through the Torah in three years. So each Saturday, each Sabbath, there would be a portion of the Torah that they would read, and it was portioned out so that it would go in a three-year cycle. Now, today, the Jews have compressed that into a one-year cycle, but at the time, it was three years. And their scriptures, they call it the Tanakh, which really is just the way of, of speaking out T-N-K, those three letters that stand for Torah, Nevi'im, which is the prophets, and Ketuvim, which is the writings, which would be like Psalms and Proverbs and, and uh, Ecclesiastes and Job and all those types of books. But they only read in the liturgy from the first two, from the Torah, the Law, the first five books, and the prophets, all of those prophets that we know of. They would have two prayers that they would say ritually and two readings, two portions. And the Parashah, or the Sidra, which was the Torah portion, was read first, and then the Haftarah was the Nevi'im portion, the, the portion that was going from the prophets. That would be read second. So the Torah reading goes first, and the Haftarah, and there would be ten elders who would sit in the front row. 
And the chief of the elders would choose and invite someone to be the Aliyah. The Aliyah was the reader. But Aliyah literally means to go up or to ascend because the reader would go up and ascend onto the platform called the Bima platform. And then he would be handed the scroll. And yes, it would be a he. The she's didn't get to do this. Sorry. Talk about that in a second. Um, the Chazan was the attendant who would take the books, the scrolls, from the ark. There would be a big, ornate, wooden um, container box uh, at the back, and the scrolls were all in there. And he would take the, the identified scroll and then hand it to the Aliyah as he came up to read, as he ascended to the Beamer platform. And readers always stood to read. It was unlawful to sit or even to lean while you were reading. You had to stand to read. But teachers always sat to teach. So you would stand to read and to pray, and then you would sit to teach, which is one reason I like to sit. I just like to follow that tradition. And also to be more at an eye level with you all, not just kind of bearing down. But yes, they would always sit to teach. Um, this, uh, let me talk about the layout for just a second. Imagine the synagogue being in a big open courtyard, you know, enclosed on all four sides. And at the far side, you would have the bima platform, the raised platform, where um, the leaders would stand. In the first row, all the ten elders would sit across the first row, and then the rest of the courtyard was bisected, divided down the middle by a lattice. You know what a lattice is? If you look at the picture that we have in the the inserts, um, behind Jesus is a lattice. You know, you can see through it, but the lattice would be separating the men on one side from the women on the other, and the women would be enclosed by the lattice. And, of course, they didn't get to speak. They could just audit what was going on, and they were doing it from behind that lattice. And so... This is the, the, the layout that we're talking about. And remember, even though we talk about opening and closing a book, it ain't a book. It's a scroll. If you look at that picture again, you get an idea. So these are animal skins that are stitched together, and they are rolled onto wooden dowels, right? And some of these scrolls were long. If it was a long book, the scroll could be 15 or 20 feet long, all right? That's from, that's the width of the stage probably is about 20 feet And it's rolled onto these two wooden dowels, and they're big, big wooden dowels. So to open a book meant that you would take the two two dowels in your hand and pull it apart, and then you would have to reel it off the left and reel it onto the right and scroll it until what you wanted. It's just like scrolling on your computer, right? Until you were seeing what you needed to see. And as you continue to read, then you would continue to, to scroll. So you've got to remember, this is such a different scene. When they talk about opening and closing a book, what's really going on here? Jesus is getting the scroll. So Jesus would have been the second reader. If he was reading from Isaiah, he's reading from the Nevi'im, he's reading from the prophets. That's the second reading. But he's also going to be the expounder. So he stands and reads, but then he sits right down again after he hands the scroll back to the son the attendant who takes it and puts it back in the ark. He sits down and everybody is breathlessly waiting to see what is he going to say at this point, right? Now, if you think about reading from a scroll like this, you have to know what you're doing. Because when you open the scroll, what you are presented with are columns that are reading from right to left, you know, the opposite way we do. And they're just fully justified columns. If you know what that means, they're completely lined up 
both on the left and right side of the column. Consonants only. There are no vowels. There's no punctuation. There's no parsing between words. That means there's no space between words. There's no space between sentences and no punctuation. There are just justified rows of consonant letters. And if a word, and it's a set number of characters on each line, right? So that it's a straight, fully justified column. So if a word breaks at the end of the line, it starts on the next line. And all you're presented with is just this dense column of consonants. You've got to know what you're doing. You have to know how to read this. You can't just stand up. Even if you knew Hebrew, you couldn't just stand up and read from the scroll if you didn't know where you were. And then there's no, there's no chapter headings. There's nothing. So Jesus is scrolling to find the passage that he wants to read from the Isaiah scroll. He has to know where that is. He needs to be able to find it. And so Jesus didn't just fall off the turnip truck and do this. He was trained. It was his custom to read and to teach. You can say from age 12, he was in the synagogue, in the temple. He was customary that he would do this. And so he reads this passage, and he closes the book. So what do you have to do when you close the book? Some of you, do you remember Be Kind, Rewind? when we used to get the VCR tapes and they would say, be kind, rewind. So you rewind it so the next person doesn't have to do all the rewinding before they get to watch their movie. He would have to roll that back. So think about it. If you were at the end of a 20-foot scroll, you had to roll back 20 feet before you put it together and hand it back to the attendant. Maybe the attendant did that. I don't know. Maybe that was his job. Not really sure about that. It would make sense, I suppose. But somebody had to rewind um, so this is what he's actually doing. He hands it back and he sits down to teach. All eyes are fixed on him. They're breathless because they'd heard what he'd done. They were waiting to see expectantly what he was going to do. And they're amazed. You know, isn't this Joseph's son? And the people were approving of Jesus. They were excited about him to come back at first. But Jesus' teaching of Isaiah, the way he's going to interpret, the way he's going to expound it for them is going to change everything because his gift from the wilderness what he learned there, what he became there in his hero's journey is going to become their call to radical transformation for themselves. And how are they going to react? Well, let's take a look at verse 18, still in Luke 4. And this is from the, uh, the Peshitta. The Peshitta is the, actually a Peshitta is the oldest dated manuscript that we have in existence right now, dating back to I think 484 or something like that. But the Peshitta is a Syriac version. That's a dialect of Aramaic. And it's not this type of Galilean Aramaic Jesus would have spoken, but it's a heck of a lot closer. So this is a direct translation from the Peshitta. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And what this is translating is that quote from Isaiah. Because we want to start to get a difference between the way we would understand that quote from Isaiah in English and the way the people would have understood it in their native Aramaic. So, again, in English, but directly quoting or translating from the Peshitta, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, and because of this he has anointed me to declare hope to the poor. Not preach the gospel, but declare hope to the poor. And he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. Healing the brokenhearted doesn't appear in the Greek version. 
and to preach life, I'm sorry, to preach to the captives release and to preach to the blind sight and to free with forgiveness those who are oppressed and to preach the era acceptable to the Lord. One more time, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, and because of this, he has anointed me to declare hope to the poor, and he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, and to preach to the captives release, and to the blind sight, and to free with forgiveness those who are oppressed, and to preach the era acceptable to the Lord. So this idea of preaching the gospel, how are we going to think about this? Because this is not the kind of gospel that we would normally think about in Christian terms, that we would normally think about in modern Western terms. It's a different concept of gospel. It's not a theological formula. It's not a mandate for us to believe in Jesus in a specific way. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again from my old Catholic liturgy days, right? It's not going to be a formulation of theology at this point. It's going to be a declaration of hope. And to the poor, but not the physically or materially poor. Remember, Jesus talks about the poor in spirit. It's those who are completely reliant on God because they don't know how else they're going to get from point A to point B. The ones who have been marginalized, the ones who have been downtrodden, the ones who have been traumatized. It's that kind of poor. But this declaration of hope is the best news possible that someone in that state can receive because it's like a nourishing. There is still something there that they can grab, that all is not lost, that we still matter, even when it feels like all of that is gone and just dust, that we don't matter anymore. To heal the brokenhearted is the same idea. This idea of healing and bringing back to nourishment, bringing back to center those who have lost their hope. And then release for the captives and sight to the blind, which we need to look at also spiritually to release the captives, to release ourselves from our own paralysis of fear, not just healing physical bodies. And to receive sight for the blind or hearing to the deaf is all about being able to see this new world out there once the curtain has been pulled back from the one that we thought we knew. And to free with forgiveness is particularly interesting. Those who are oppressed, because the word that has been translated as free is serara, which is also the word for truth. This is a peculiar aspect of Eastern Semitic religions as well. So many different concepts in the same word, but they all relate to a, 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 a basic underlying truth, the root truth. So to be free and to be true is both the same word, serara. It means that which liberates, that which opens possibilities that you didn't know existed before. In other words, it's that which is true because it frees you, because it opens new possibilities. And the word translated as forgiveness is subkana. And that also means liberation. So what is Jesus really saying here? To free with forgiveness is to basically say that the truth will set you free. The truth will make you free. The truth will forgive. The truth will restore. That forgiveness is literally freedom and truth itself. Everything is centered on truth. I love the way all of this dovetails, all the sayings of Jesus come together. But of course, we need to ask, what is this truth he speaks of? What is this truth that actually sets free? 
If we continue on with the story at verse 21, Jesus says, or Luke says, and Jesus began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. What scripture? The one from Isaiah, where he's talking about declaring hope to the poor, release to the captives, and so on and so forth. This scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. They're still waiting because they're still waiting for the Romans to be thrown out so that they can have a sovereign nation so that they can exercise all of this. And Jesus is saying, it's fulfilled today in your hearing. There is no more waiting on this. You are free. You are forgiven. You're as free and forgiven as you want to be. It's up to you. What are you waiting for? Remember what he says to the man at the, at the pool? Do you wish to be well? And when we put that back into Aramaic, that means, is it your deepest pleasure? Is it your deepest desire? Is it your deepest purpose to be whole and complete? Basically to be shalom, to have the fullness expression of life? Do you wish to be well? This is Jesus' gift that he's trying to give to the people. This is the good news of the gospel. What he brought back from his hero's journey, just as Moses brought back the tablets of the law to the people 1,500 years before, Jesus comes back from his mountain, from his wilderness experience, and brings back the freedom, the unity of knowing that every one of us is completely accepted and loved just as we are, that every one of us has equal access to the Father today, now, not sometime in the future. Don't have to wait for it. His gift to the people is the call for them to embark on their own hero's journey because they have to make it true for themselves. Nobody can just give this to you. Dorothy was given the ruby slippers. She didn't know how they worked. She couldn't work them. She couldn't conceive that they would take her home until she took the journey. The journey is what opened her up to her own truth inside, the connection to that truth. And Jesus couldn't give this truth to his people, and he can't give it to us. And so his gift is, you are loved and accepted right now. You are as free and forgiven as you want to be. Are you willing to follow me and take this journey that will make this real for you so that you can live this as you were meant to live it? How did the people respond? Let's read from verse 22 and find out. It's going to be a little ugly. And all were speaking well of him, well of Jesus, and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, is this not Joseph's son? And Jesus said to them, no doubt you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And Jesus said, I truly say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over all the land. And yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, which is in, to, in today's Lebanon, which means it was a Gentile country, to a woman who was a widow. 
And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha, the prophet, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian, another Gentile. You see what he's doing here? This is not going to go well. And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these thoughts, and they got up and drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down off the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went his way. So at first the people are pleased. They want to have the miracles and the signs that he did in Capernaum. They're looking for the red meat. You know when you talk about red meat, a politician throws the red meat to his base, you know, sets up the us versus them. and, and They were looking for that from this warrior king Messiah that they were looking for. They wanted to hear how the Romans were these horrible people and the Gentiles were these horrible people, the Samaritans were those horrible people, and we're the chosen ones, and we're going to... Pre- That's what they're looking for. They're looking for that red meat. And then they want the signs and the miracles on top of that. And Jesus isn't giving them any of that. In fact, what he's doing is he's shattering, shattering their narrow-minded, parochial, and even xenophobic ideas here. He's showing them that their narrative about them being first and God still waiting for the moment to throw out the Romans and set them all free is an illusion. That God loves the Gentiles as much as he loves them. In fact, he sent his prophets to the Gentiles because they were the ones who had the poverty of spirit, not the Jews. They were the ones who were prepared for the gift, not the Jews. He knows that they have missed the point. He knows that they're nowhere ready for his message or to embark on this journey. And so he shatters their illusion and they don't go well with it. If we look at this one more way, Jesus' gift from his journey is that the means that we use must match the ends that we seek. The means we use must match the ends we seek. We will never be unified We will never experience the oneness with our God until we first practice living in unity. And I know that sounds like a catch-22, but it's not. Because if we are willing to take the first steps in vulnerability to the doorstep of another person's consciousness and connect with them there, if we start to practice that, if we start to see each other as human beings, worthy and deserving of all love and connection, That's our first step. But if we're going to sit in our xenophobic corner, if we're going to continue to cast aspersions at the other, there is no way that we can move from that position to the unity of kingdom, the freedom of this message that Jesus was trying to get across to each one of us. We will never be unified until we first practice unity and begin to see it in life around us. We are never going to be experiencing our lives as forgiven until we forgive those around us. God isn't waiting to forgive us until we forgive. We're already forgiven as far as God is concerned. There was never a break in our relationship from the point of view of perfect degreeless love. But we will never experience that connection until we forgive. And we will never be set free until we set others free. Let them fly. Let them be empowered to go where they go and not try to control for any reason that has to do with our own needs. It's all up to us. It's all up to us. 
It's up to us because the good news, the truth is, God has already chosen, God has already acted, and it's all in our favor. That's the good news. There is nothing more that God can do. There is nothing that God is withholding. Everything that we need is already here and has been here since the beginning of time. But it won't be available to us until we take this journey that Jesus is talking about, his way of coming to the Father, the only way that you can come to the Father. God has already acted. We're as free or forgiven as we want to be. We're as free as we can stand. We're as free as we're willing to accept. But we can't know this truth, and we can't live free until we go on our own journey and make it real in our lives. Jesus' gospel is a call to the hero's journey. He says, follow me, not watch me and mentally agree with what I'm doing and call it belief, but follow me. Do what I am doing. Go through the journey. Feel the disruption. Feel the disturbance. Make the risk. Make it real. He said, if you follow my word, then you're my followers, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. So what's our response? Not just a mental agreement to sit and say we believe, but are we willing to take a journey? One last thing I want to read to you. What happens when you refuse the call? What happens when you don't? Too afraid to answer this call and actually take this journey to lay aside everything that we have been using for our security and survival. We all begin life as the hero begins his story. At home, naked in the garden, at peace and content with life. But through a wounding or loss or threat, paradise is lost. And we are called to begin a search to regain our contentment, our bliss, which may have been lost for so long we can barely remember ever having had it, or may even assume we're searching to find it for the very first time. This call comes early in life. The angst and restlessness of adolescence are the physical, psychological, and spiritual manifestations of the call to leave the too small garden of the child and enter the too large, terrifying world of the adult. For many or most of us, that new world is just too big, too frightening, and unfamiliar to immediately enter, and the call is refused. But to refuse the call, to retreat back to the garden of our childhood, only to find it locked and guarded by, guarded by angels with flaming swords, to camp outside it, unable to go back, afraid to go forward, is to negate the very purpose and desire of God, to be ripening always toward perfect unity with him and with each other. From Joseph Campbell. Often in actual life and not infrequently in the myths and popular tales, we encounter the dull case of the call unanswered, for it is always possible to turn the ear to other interests. Refusal of the summons converts the adventure into its negative. Walled in boredom, hard work, or culture, the subject loses the power of significant affirmative action and becomes a victim to be saved. His flowering world becomes a wasteland of dry stones and his life feels meaningless. Back to spirituality as a search for meaning, right? Then Joseph Campbell quotes in Proverbs, because I have called and you refused, 
I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock you when your fear comes. When your fear comes as desolations and your destruction comes as a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you. No longer children, but yet not willing to be adults. Looking to all the world as ripe and ready, but hard and green inside. There's not much point to a life like this. Yeshua curses the fig tree in Matthew 21 that looks from a distance to be ripe and full of fruit, but on closer inspection, just leaves and branches. His curse is to expose its inner withered nature. Many of us are camped outside Eden, too frightened to answer the call, unable to go back. Jesus is saying today, in your hearing, in our hearing, just as immediate as it was 2,000 years ago, the good news is, the truth is, that all is fulfilled. Not tomorrow, today, right now. But today is terrifying, right? Today means it's calling us to action right now, to decision right now. No more procrastination, no more kicking the can down the road. Jesus is saying the waiting is over. The kingdom is here. Kingdom is now. Do you wish to be well? He's told us what we need to do. The only question is, are we ready? Let's pray. Father, the, the, the truth for us is that we're usually ready in part and not in whole. So our prayer this morning is to make us more and more ready, layer by layer, day by day, hurt by hurt, trauma by trauma. Make us more and more ready to let go of the things that are really our limitations that are keeping us from being able to embark on this journey our only journey back to you. That's what we want, Father, but it is frightening. So more and more, make us ready. More and more, help us to hear this gospel in this way, in our own reading, in our own prayer, that we see more and more exactly what it is that Jesus is showing us so that we can let go, drop our nets, and follow. We want to follow. Sometimes we're just not ready yet. Once again, Lord, thank you for everything that you have done to prepare us. Thank you everything that you have done to give us the tools that we need, to give us our ruby slippers. Thank you for loving us the way that you do. And never let us forget that we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.